This is John Harris with the Tennessee Firearms Association. Today's podcast topic is going to examine the Castle Doctrine in Tennessee. It is likely not what you may believe it to be. Some believe that the Castle Doctrine derives from the old adage that a person's home is his or her castle, suggesting that if someone is in your home, that deadly force is justified based on that fact alone. That belief is reflected in the sometimes given advice that if you have to shoot someone in the yard, drag the body in the house before the police arrive. Whatever you get from this discussion today, do not do that. Do not tamper with potential crime scene evidence. Now, let's actually discuss what the concept of the Castle Doctrine means in Tennessee, if it has one at all. In Tennessee, there is a statute that comes close to what some might call the Castle Doctrine. However, it is fundamentally a legal presumption that shifts the burden of proof in a criminal trial. It is not the concept that you can shoot or use deadly force just because someone is in your home. To the contrary, it's far from that. Cases have discussed the issue of under what circumstances a person is allowed to use deadly force against another. Frequently, the concept was often referred to as defense of habitation by the courts. Typically, the entire doctrine, when it was addressed by the courts, was found in one or two sentences or perhaps a short paragraph. For example, the Tennessee Supreme Court stated in a case called Marks v. Borum in 1873, which is a case involving the alleged theft of turkeys and chickens, that a man may repel force by force in defense of his person, habitation, or property against one who manifestly intends or endeavors, by violence or surprise, to commit a known felony, such as murder, rape, robbery, arson, burglary, and the like, upon either. In these cases, he is not obliged to retreat, but may pursue his adversary until he has secured himself from all danger, and if he kill him in doing so, it is justifiable in self-defense. In the Marks case, the court noted that the force could be used against one who intends or endeavors by force or surprise to commit a felony without first being required to retreat from the threat. The courts in Tennessee have frequently examined the question of whether and under what circumstances there is a duty to retreat before someone could use deadly force even in their own home. Most often, the issue that the courts were focused upon was whether there was a duty to retreat, which did generally apply if you were in public, but might not apply if you were in your own home. In 1989, the Tennessee legislature codified what is now found in Tennessee Code Annotated Section 39-11-611, which is Tennessee's current self-defense statute. This statute altered the doctrines that had been developed by the courts in criminal cases for more than two centuries and put in its place a statute that today the Tennessee Supreme Court suggests is poorly written and even ambiguous. So what is the Castle Doctrine in Tennessee today? In general, what many refer to as the Castle Doctrine in Tennessee is presently a set of elements that define when someone is entitled to use deadly force in certain specific locations, and if so, whether there is a duty to retreat before doing so. Depending on how these elements are satisfied in each particular case, the Castle Doctrine may or may not create a rebuttable legal presumption 
that applies during the jury trial in a criminal case. If the presumption is applied, the state will bear the burden of showing that it was not a self-defense incident. As I noted earlier, the courts, in developing the doctrine that they established, could often describe the doctrine in two or three sentences. Now let's compare that with the statutory scheme that the legislature has created. We start with Tennessee Code Annotated 3911-611 and the general rule pertaining to the use of deadly force which is found in subpart B2. These are the elements in general for the use of deadly force in Tennessee. First, is the person engaged in any form of unlawful activity? If so, there is a duty to retreat before resorting to deadly force. Second, is the person in a place where the person has a right to be? If not, there is a duty to retreat before resorting to deadly force. Third, does the person have a reasonable belief that there is an imminent fear of death or serious bodily injury? Fourth, is the danger that's creating the belief of imminent death or serious bodily injury real or honestly believed to be real at the time? And fifth, is the belief of the danger founded upon reasonable grounds. These basic elements apply to all circumstances, regardless of whether you are in your home, at work, in a car, in a park, or in a public place. So what additional elements come into play when we talk about the Castle Doctrine in Tennessee? What some might refer to as the Castle Doctrine is found in subpart C of Tennessee Code Annotated 39-11-611. It addresses a change in the analysis based upon whether or not the person is located in certain geographic locations. If those elements are met, the law creates a rebuttable presumption in favor of the person claiming self-defense that there was, in fact, imminent fear of death or serious bodily injury. So what are these additional factors? First, is the person who is resorting to deadly force at the time within a residence, business, dwelling, or vehicle. Each of these terms are defined in the statute and have definitions that are somewhat generally broader than what might be the standard dictionary definition. For example, the word residence is defined in the statute to include not just the actual home, but it includes any dwelling in which a person resides, either temporarily or permanently, or is visiting as an invited guest, or dwelling, or building, or other structure that's within the curtilage of a residence. This can make the determination of a protected zone quite broad. Second, did the person against whom force was used unlawfully and forcibly enter, or had they unlawfully or forcibly entered, the residence, business, dwelling, or vehicle? Third, did the person claiming self-defense know at the time that they used deadly force that the other person had unlawfully and forcibly entered the property? These are the initial elements that give rise to the presumption that someone who is in a protected place, such as a residence, is presumed to have had a reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury. But that, again, is only a rebuttable presumption. Even if all of these three elements are existing, the district attorney can overcome the presumption by showing that the deadly force was used at a time that the threat of injury or death no longer existed. For example, 
the facts might show that the person who had forcibly entered the property was leaving and was shot in the back. In addition, witness testimony might establish that the person had surrendered, essentially, and was leaving the property and no longer posing a threat. Any viable claim that deadly force was justified might be overcome with such evidence, and therefore the presumption rebutted by the state. In addition to these three initial elements that we find in the statute, there are four more qualifications found in subpart D of the statute, which state that this geographic presumption doesn't apply if certain other elements are met. For example, you cannot use force against a person who is otherwise lawfully in or a residence of the dwelling, place of business, vehicle, such as a cohabitant, an invitee, or a guest. Another factor that would negate the ability to rely upon the presumption is that the person against whom force is used was attempting to remove a child, a grandchild, or another person for which that individual was a lawful guardian or a lawful custodian and had the right to enter the property to retrieve that person. Another factor that would disqualify the use of deadly force in such a circumstance is if the person was a law enforcement officer who at the time was in the performance of his or her duties and who announced that they were a law enforcement officer or if the person in the property using force knew or reasonably should have known that they were a law enforcement officer even if no announcement was made. The fourth additional factor is that the person who resorted to deadly force cannot be engaged in any unlawful activity or cannot be using the dwelling, business, residence, or vehicle to further any unlawful activity. This one is a real problem in Tennessee because courts have held now that there does not have to be any connection between the unlawful activity and the facts giving rise to the use of deadly force. For example, it is entirely possible under the statute as it's written that the unlawful activity might be something such as theft of cable services or a code violation or a zoning violation or something else that has nothing to do with the sudden assault and need to use deadly force. But the fact that unlawful activity by the person resorting to deadly force was taking place would deny that individual the right to rely upon the statutory presumption that might be called the Castle Doctrine. The point of this discussion is to try to illustrate that once again, the courts, when they approach this concept, tended to develop a set of rules that were relatively straightforward. It focused on, is there a need to retreat before using deadly force? And the courts rationalized in many of those cases that if there was a safe avenue of retreat, there just could not, as a practical matter, be an imminent fear of death or serious bodily injury. Now, there did become a problem from time to time with speculation in the court system where the district attorney and the defense attorney would be pitching out different theories on how someone might have been able to safely retreat or how they may have been unable to safely retreat and then left that issue on the jury to decide so that they could conclude one way or the other whether retreat was required. 
in some respects, the General Assembly tried to draft a set of rules that eliminated the back and forth with the jury on whether or not there was a safe avenue of retreat. The problem is the statute that they have created and that they have consistently made worse since it went on the books in 1989 has so many conditions and so many elements in it that most people really don't fully comprehend when they can resort to the use of deadly force within one of these protected zones without first having to evaluate and potentially retreat from the property. The Tennessee Firearms Association would urge you to contact your legislators and help us improve this law. What we need is something simple that everyone can understand. Perhaps a law that simply says, if you're in a protected zone, your home, your business, your residence, a hotel room, a tent, your vehicle, anything of that nature, and someone presents an imminent fear of death or serious bodily injury, you can resort to deadly force without having to retreat, period. There doesn't need to be an evaluation requirement of whether or not the presentation of force was as a result of someone who had unlawfully and forcibly entered the property or the protected zone. There doesn't need to be an evaluation of whether or not you were engaged in unlawful activity of any degree at the time. It simply needs to be an evaluation of were you in a protected zone and did this person present an imminent fear of death or serious bodily injury? If so, there should be no duty to retreat and you shouldn't even have to evaluate whether there's a duty of retreat. This has been a presentation of the Tennessee Firearms Association. Check us out on our website at www.tennesseefirearms.com. That's www.tennesseefirearms.com. And you can also find us on our Facebook page at Tennessee Firearms.